0: Vanessa, today is such an incredibly exciting day because your book is out in the world. I know a lot about your book because I've read it, but I'm guessing that most of our listeners don't know it as well as I do and certainly don't know it as well as you do. So I'm wondering if we can just talk for a few minutes about the book and um, about what excites you in the book and why you want to share it with people. What is it? What's it called? And what's the premise of it?
1: So the book is called Praying with Jane Eyre, Reflections on Reading as a Sacred Practice. And uh, I will say my biggest hope for the book is that non-Jane Eyre readers read it. You don't need to know Jane Eyre in order to enjoy the book, just like you don't need to have like read the whole Bible in order to listen to a sermon, right? That's the goal. But the idea is that... I would say that the religion and sort of nationality and everything that I was raised in was the Holocaust more than Judaism. And I really wanted to reckon with that and reckon with my grandparents' stories and wonder at what meaning I could make of my grandparents' stories. But trying to make meaning of their stories always felt like sort of a gross privilege of someone who's two generations removed. And so I tried for a long time with the Torah. And I feel like a lot of people who have been traumatized by religion for any number of ways, traditional religion feels like triggering, for lack of a better word, way to try to make meaning. Because you're like, well, this text has betrayed me in some ways. And so I wanted sort of something to refract the stories of my grandparents in order to make meaning and Jane Eyre does not remind me of the Holocaust at all so it seemed like a sort of triangular way to look at the horror of my grandparents lives I keep thinking about it like in a clip so like you couldn't sort of look directly at them. So you have to like look through those glasses and Jane Eyre the glasses. And so I'm sharing the lessons that I learned from that. You know, I was trained to preach by Dan Smith, a Christian preacher. And so I was trained to preach sharing good news. And I try to find like the best news that I can share from figuring out how to look at my grandparents' stories through these glasses of Jane Eyre.
0: I want to ask you more about why you chose Jane Eyre. Like, Were there other candidates, other books or besides the Torah that you were thinking about using as a way to kind of triangulate towards your, your grandparents' experience? Or was there something in Jane Eyre always that seemed like it was calling you more deeply into reflection?
1: It was like never anything but Jane Eyre. Jane Eyre really was my favorite book before I read it. It was my mom's favorite book. And she would talk about it my whole childhood. She She did a year at a boarding school and she was like very isolated and alone and a teacher sort of took my mom under her wing and gave my mom Jane Eyre and Jane Eyre made my mom feel close to this teacher and just like really made her feel less alone. And so I wanted to read it as a kid and my mom knew I was like not an advanced reader. I was an avid reader, but not a precocious one. And so my mom was like, well, I got Jane Eyre when I was 14, so I will give it to you on your 14th birthday. And I read it and I loved it and I understood very little of it except for the romance. But I like immediately went around saying it was my favorite book. I read it every year and it really became this text that was written on my heart. And it is it's a dense book, which is what makes it a little bit difficult to read. But also it's just so great to reread because you really notice things every time that are different like there are these really rich metaphors that you can totally follow th- what's going on in the book even if you sort of skip the non-romantic parts but because of that it's just like it's just so good every time and you know i love romance and it's a really steamy romance so
0: that last answer is really interesting because one of the things i want to ask you is sort of a chicken and egg question which your last answer i think is starting to point towards or i just want to excavate more but like what came first the sacred or Jane Eyre? Right, like, were you treating Jane Eyre as sacred already, and then thought, "Oh, I can refract my family's history through this and try to make some meaning of it." Right, or was the need to make some meaning of your family's history kind of the meaning-making, the theological kind of calling that you said, "Oh, I need a text to use," and it's Jane Eyre. It sounds like it's kind of both, but what can you tell me more about that relationship?
1: I think I was always predisposed to treat texts as sacred. I think I just had a relationship with art that was geared toward meaning-making, that was geared toward like quite sacred practices, right? Like, I mean, the movie The Goodbye Girl, which is a Neil Simon movie, I memorized it because I found just like the words in my mouth so fun to say. Now I'm like, oh, that was chanting, right? Like there was something about that that actually was sort of a sacred practice, And then I was halfway through Divinity School where I went to because I wanted to make myself braver and I wanted to make myself able to confront difficult things. And every time I went to temple, like I would hear the schma and be like, "Uh, my cousins and aunt and uncle, right, like recited this in the gas chambers before they died. Like I just like couldn't get past that. And so Jane Eyre was like ready for me, I would say. And that's the advice I give when people want to treat something as sacred. The advice I give is start with something you already love. It's the easiest way in. And you already have a sacred relationship with the thing because you already love it. And like love and attention sort of is sacredness. So,
0: Well, the thing you said before and then the previous answer just about how the first time you read it, you didn't even really understand it. But right. you read it every year regardless of how well you understood it, just on the wager that you knew there was something meaningful in it. You knew that people you loved, loved it. That you knew that people you loved, others around you, had found this deep meaning in it. And so you were committed to it. Like you had this relationship of trust with the text already. There was another interesting word you used before when you said that often folks turn away from religious texts because they feel betrayed by them in certain ways, right? And so I'm wondering, you know, you have this deep trust in Jane Eyre. Have you discovered, as you've come to understand it better, are there places where that text maybe has betrayed you? And how has that played against whatever trust you have in the text or how you continue to trust or distrust the text?
1: Yeah, I have a whole chapter about this in the book because I did. I had a real moment of betrayal with the text where I always knew that it was like racially problematic and there's an anti-Semitic comment in it. And then the first time that I led a community in reading it, and I wonder if this is the same for you, Matt, I felt more like the book was my responsibility. And I was embarrassed. I was like, oh my God, I can't believe this book is imperialist. It is evangelical. One of the characters sort of gets saved by going around and like preaching Christ as a savior to people in India, which I am very against, right? Like, and it's, racist and just very patriarchal and as soon as i gave it to others as a sacred text and felt implicated in that i was like oh shoot this book is super problematic and the conclusion i came to is that everything you have a sacred relationship with is going to betray you i think what happened was i i set out to treat the process of treating something sacred as an important thing And I got confused and thought that that meant that I was treating Jane Eyre as sacred, when really what I was doing was treating the process of reading as sacred. And so I sort of went back to that. I was like, no, I trust the process, right, of treating a text as sacred. That doesn't mean that I think that the text is perfect.
0: So Vanessa, tell me how this book relates to our podcast, The Harry Potter and Sacred Text, and why our listeners should be interested in it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that our listeners know what I knew at 14, but they know it with Harry Potter, right? Which is that the more time you spend with a book, the more gifts it will give you. And that, as Simone Bay said, faith is the indispensable thing. And every time you spend time with something, knowing it will give you blessings, that is faith. And I think they know in general that being a reader and talking to other readers can make you feel known And overall, that really is my hope for the book. I talk about some really dark things in the book, things that aren't like polite conversation, dark feelings, feelings of like wanting other people to suffer a little bit and feelings of resentment and anger. And I hope it just gives people permission to confront that within themselves and love themselves in spite of, because of those feelings. And I feel like Harry Potter similar in that way. Book five is so great because you get to see angry Harry and we get to see Harry get mad at his mentor and feel betrayed and have like an embarrassing not great first kiss and right like we get to go through all of these vulnerable moments with Harry and I think that's part of why people love Harry Potter and so Jane Eyre is similar in that way. You watch Jane make a lot of mistakes. She finds out that Rochester, the man she has a crush on, maybe has a crush on another woman who she hasn't met yet. And she like draws the most beautiful possible portrait of this other woman, Miss Ingram, and then draws like a really self-loathing picture of herself. And I feel like that's the same as like doom scrolling on Facebook, the person who you think your crush has a crush on, right? Like it's very relatable and vulnerable as a book. And I hope that I'm sort of guiding people through that. Just like if you think of Jane Eyre as hell, I'm Virgil, and I'm walking you through. And of course, I have a chapter using Harry Potter as my sacred text. So I recommend starting with that chapter. It's about hope. And obviously, it's about my favorite scene, walking through the forest. Their presence was his courage, is the piece of text I preach on.
0: I also think that it relates in particular to this second go-round of our read through Harry Potter, because... One of the things I love about your book, Vanessa, is how honest it is, not only about yourself and your own emotional experiences and your own history, but also about your relationship to Jane Eyre and about discovering where the warts are and where maybe the more than warts are, where the flaws are and what it means to be in a trusting relationship with something you know is not perfect. And I think listeners of this podcast know, just as you and I know, that these Harry Potter books although we trust them in many ways, are not perfect. And they reinscribe some things that we do not want to see in the world. And so one of the things we're doing this kind of go-round is exploring this particular aspect of what it means to treat a text as sacred. Not just to trust it, but also to trust it with clear eyes, right? And that's something you do really beautifully with Jane Eyre in in your book. And it becomes an example of how we should read Harry Potter, I think.
1: Thank you. I think, you know, something that Stephanie said to me really early on in the process of discerning what it means to treat a text as sacred is I was sitting there really struggling with a piece of text and I sort of closed my eyes and said to myself like in in an effort to remind myself of what we were doing I was like okay so the text is perfect and she said do we think the text is perfect and I was like don't we think the text is perfect and she was like treating something as sacred does not mean we think it's perfect it means that we think it can give us gifts but problems with the text can also give us gifts. Yep. And then she, you know, she was like, you love your parents. Do you think they're perfect? And I was like, good point, Stephanie. My parents are perfect. <laughs> so, right. it. I think that that distinction is so important. And then actually a text betraying you can teach you about forgiveness and about loving something in a complicated way because things are complicated. Mm-hmm. And I also think it's just so important to treat text as sacred, right? Cuz like the goal is to treat your neighbor as sacred and to love your neighbor. And so like loving a text that isn't perfect is just better practice for loving your neighbor because your neighbor's not perfect.
0: That's right. Well, thank you so much, Vanessa, first of all for writing this book and for sharing the writing process with me, which was really such a joy <laughs> and pleasure. Really it was. It was it was great. I loved seeing I loved talking to you about it when it was an idea, I loved reading it when it was a manuscript, and I can't wait to hold it in my hands. So, thank you. And thanks for chatting with me about it for the last few minutes.
1: Oh my God. I would just recommend that anyone who's writing a book should have a friend like Matt who is willing to sit there and read a chapter and then help you refine your ideas. And I really am so grateful to this community. I I loved writing this book and I'm excited to share it with you and without you all, it wouldn't exist. So the thing I most look forward to is hearing your thoughts about the book. So please do email me. And I hope to be out in the world again soon and talking to you all about it. So I hope that you can join tonight for the launch party. Bring a glass of something sparkly to drink at some point during it. And you can register. It's free, but you can register at VanessaSoltan.com. And I hope you enjoy this chapter from the book. Thanks for everything, everyone. Chapter 7 on Heartbreak. I can live alone if self respect and circumstances require me so to do. Chapter 19 Jane Eyre Jane gets herself a job at Thornfield Hall as a governess to a young French girl. It is here where she meets and becomes enchanted with her boss, Mr. Rochester. When I read the novel for the first time at 14 years old, I fell in love with Mr. Rochester because I was supposed to fall in love with Mr. Rochester. I still love him, and I like to think that now it is in part for more complicated reasons. But partly, I think I still love him because I am supposed to. He is romantic. He is injured when we first meet him, and it turns out that he has demons as well. He is brooding. Moody and complicated. He is exactly the kind of great eccentric man that women are trained to endure and adore. The Dillons from 90210, the Jesses from Gilmore Girls. Damaged men with hearts of gold are the dream young women are often taught, and I am no better than my training. But Mr. Rochester also cherishes Jane. He is fun and full of life. He is a deeply loving man. He is generous and strange. He is a catch. Jane falls in love with Mr. Rochester, at least in part because he has two traits that she has never experienced in a man before. He is there, and he pays positive attention to her. Rochester's attention is not always kind, but it is acute. He looks at each of her drawings and paintings and does not compliment them other than to call them odd. He really looks at her. He does not, as Mr. Brocklehurst or her cousin John Reed did, look at her as something to dominate, an object to humiliate. He looks at her to try to understand and connect with her. Jane falls in love with Rochester in large part because he is the first man to pay attention to her in a real way, and that attention feels like the sun shining on her. She does not realize that his attention is also a fire that could consume her. And the more we get to know Rochester, The clearer it becomes that he is more than simply a man who is alive and noticing Jane. At the end of the novel, it turns out that Jane and Rochester can hear each other's voices on the wind while hundreds of miles away from each other. After that supernatural moment, they find their way back to each other and achieve perfect bliss together. Call it destiny or luck. I'd say it's more of the latter, but she finds a man who happens to treat her well and who is in many ways at least trying to be worthy of her. Patriarchy wants women to believe so many things about men. It wants us to believe that we need men both to be happy in our everyday lives and to be accepted and respected by society. Along with many other untruths, it wants women to believe that men are scarce so that we are willing to compromise on them. One of the darkest open secrets that I live with every day is that I both love my life partner and am afraid I love him for the same reason that Jane loves Rochester. He's there and he pays attention to me. I happen to think with this particular partner, I, like Jane, got lucky, and we are well-suited in a more urbane way than hearing voices on the wind. But I happen to believe that just like Jane, it's only good luck that Peter and I are a good match. I might have chosen him anyway. Mama and Papa had been married for 59 years when Mama died. And for the last 10 years of Mama's life, Papa took better care of her than any nurse has ever taken care of any patient in the history of creation. But before she got sick, he cheated on her so shamelessly, he'd bring his girlfriend around for Shabbat dinners, family birthday parties, and even, most notably in my memory, for my older brother's bar mitzvah photo shoot. It was just the immediate family, my parents, my brothers and me, and all three of my living grandparents. There should have been eight of us in the room, but there were nine. Papa's girlfriend, Mary, was also there. Papa called Mary his secretary or his friend, but it was an open secret that they were a couple. I had bought the secretary slash friend line until that day in 1993. But Mama and Anyu were not warm to us kids that day, which was out of character. They instead were huddled together, the two of them, whispering. They weren't speaking to Mary, and I don't think they were speaking to Papa. Papa was still affectionate and playful. I don't remember, but I bet I hugged and played with him because he seemed to be the only adult there who was in a good mood. There was a lot of talking going on among the adults, but it was in Hungarian, so I didn't understand. But I suddenly saw Mary with different eyes that day, even as I stood wrapped around the man who had brought her. Mama threatened to kill herself at least once because of Papa's cheating. She threatened to cheat back at least once as well, flirting openly at a big, fancy event in front of all of their friends. But mostly, she just took it. She spent his money and held her nose high and took it. But then, around 50 years into their marriage, when Mama got sick, and Papa happened to be too old to cheat with too many women anyway, I imagine, he was a servant at her feet, a saint. I think many women have stories like Mama's or mine. Women have, for generations, stood by and had to endure as men did this public-private blend of disrespect. And the children like me have a legacy of watching a man be awful to a woman and not being told, look, I'm accepting this for complicated reasons, but you should expect more. Jane didn't even have a couple to look at and respond to an idea of. She had a story, uncorroborated by anyone, that had her uncle lived, he would have been kind to her, but she never saw it. She has literally never in her life been in a relationship with a man who was anything other than entirely abusive to her, like her cousin John and Mr. Brocklehurst. She only knows men as wanting to beat, starve, and humiliate her, and the only counter-narrative in her head is one for which she has no real proof. And so Rochester, dream man of all dream men, is alive, and he is not brazenly abusive to Jane. He talks to her and takes an interest in her. Of course she falls in love with him. Anyone in her circumstances would. Women who have been in relationships with men have had a series of secret conversations about men for centuries. We endure certain things, and then, once we admit in whispers to a friend what it is we are enduring, we find out that she is putting up with the same thing. We support each other as the disappointments come hitting home for us. Women are just a big group like my grandmothers, who happen to speak the same language and will hold each other by the forearm and give sidelong glances to men who should be ashamed of themselves but are not, and are instead playing with their grandchildren. Love stories like Jane Eyre are part of the problem for many women. So the key is to read and reread the books until we realize that they are secret conversations warning us about good men. Jane Eyre is not about falling in love with Rochester. It is about how women need to be willing to break their own hearts in order to dispel the myths that patriarchy wants us to believe in order to enter into a relationship that is worthy of us. The men shown to us in love stories like Jane Eyre or that of my grandparents are too self-satisfied and too cowardly to break our hearts entirely. It's patriarchy scripting the idea of a psycho woman. They do not want to break up with us because we are good for them. They hurt us and maybe cause us death by 18 trillion paper cuts but patriarchy encourages men to never actually go through the technical heartbreaking themselves. And so Jane Eyre is a lesson in how to break one's own heart. My partner, Peter, and I had been together for five months when it became very clear to me that we could not be together. He never wanted to get married again or live with anyone again. He didn't want more kids. Then he suddenly started talking a lot about wanting to move back to Europe one day and come to think of it sooner rather than later. He would talk openly in front of me about a future that I was not in. I didn't make comments about it or discuss it with him. One day he was dropping me off in the car and I simply said to him, this is over, I won't change my mind. You don't want me enough. And I got out of the car. I then gulped for air and sobbed in public. I had broken my own heart, and it was one of the best things that I ever did. I didn't know what I was doing, and I did not calculate this decision. It was a crazed act of an exhausted, hurt person. It was a moment of clarity that I happened to seize upon rather than letting it pass. But I pulled off a ritual that I think is an important one for women who are enthralled by men who were raised in this ecosystem, the breaking of one's own heart. The expression is, if you love something, set it free. But I think we should change it to, if you love yourself, smash a relationship. Just once. For years before Peter, I was looking for someone, just about anyone. I would break up with people if I realized that I really couldn't stand them. But short of that, I was just on the hunt for female respectability the right to have strong opinions about diamonds and school districts, and the right to be seen as wanted despite my waist size or because of it. God would only ever know. That day in the car with Peter, I decided I wasn't going to cajole or wait. I wasn't going to do what many women I know have done, give ultimatums and cry. I just broke my own heart and got out of the car so I couldn't take it back. And I learned how to do that from Jane. I picked one prayer from Jane Eyre that Stephanie and I had worked on together. It seemed a deeply female prayer, the prayer of the woman who is looking at a man whom she has chosen simply because he is there and paying attention to her. It is a prayer that I believe women have been saying to themselves since the beginning of time I can live alone if self respect and circumstances require me so to do. I need not sell my soul to buy bliss. I have an inward treasure born with me, which can keep me alive if all extraneous delights should be withheld. I can live alone, it starts. I can live alone. This phrase admits both strength and vulnerability. It is a clear statement of strength, reminding us that one is strong enough to live alone in this vast, endless world but it is vulnerable in that it admits that one deeply prefers not to live alone. It is a reminder that we are all one catastrophe away from living alone, and that while that loneliness would be survivable, it would be almost unendurable, for it is not the way we are meant to live. I can live alone is a reminder that we are meant to live in communion with something. It is a reminder of why we read, why we gather, why we yearn. We can live alone. We should live in community. But if self-respect and circumstances it of us, then by God, we can and will live alone. I can live alone is also a reminder that solitude is in fact endurable. And it must be, for it is inevitable. Solitude should be practiced. We will all lose friends and loved ones. We will all retreat into death, which is a lonely path. We should practice for this loneliness, and we should remind ourselves of our strength in the face of it by praying, I can live alone. Then the prayer continues if self-respect and circumstances require me so to do. This phrase is a reminder that we live in a reciprocal relationship with the world. Our character, our personalities, come together with the outside world to make up our fate. Praying this line made me see it as a humble admission that we are not in control of our lives, of whether we will be alone or healthy, or poor. We are born into circumstances that can give more breathing room to the possibility of self-respect or create a very limited opportunity for it. Our characters determine our fate. World forces determine our fate. Self-respect and circumstances prayed as two interconnected concepts remind us of our agency and our helplessness. I need not sell my soul to buy bliss. When I pray this line, I remember that there will be opportunities to sell my soul, to get quick fixes of something that will feel like bliss, to buy the new shoes I don't need instead of donating the money or saving it to go visit a faraway friend. And when I pray this line, I also remember that good things happen without my intervention. Bliss comes all the time without my compromising myself. Praying this line reminds me of hope. And finally, I have an inward treasure born with me, which can keep me alive if all extraneous delights should be withheld. This line, prayed, conjures an image of something divine within me. And it reminds me of that same sacredness in all others. Everyone in this room, everyone I can see, everyone I cannot even imagine. This line moves me in its innocence and frustrates me in its lie, as if one's soul or sacredness is enough to keep them alive. It inspires me to help create a world in which it could be true, a world of plenty where one's sacredness would be all one needed. But this prayer is not uttered by Jane. Jane is already in love with Rochester when this prayer gets spoken. One night, his bed is set on fire by the awful Grace Pool, and Jane notices the smoke and saves Rochester's life. The two of them have an incredibly intimate moment together in which Rochester holds Jane's hand and says to her, You have saved my life. I have a pleasure in owing you so great a debt. Nothing else that has been would have been tolerable to me in the character of creditor for such an obligation. But you, it is different. I feel your benefits no burden, Jane. And the next day, he is gone. While he is gone, Jane realizes that she is completely in love with him, and then she goes about systematically breaking her own heart. She finds out from Mrs. Fairfax, the housekeeper, that Rochester has gone to visit Miss Ingram, whom he is rumored to have a serious flirtation with. Jane does not write in her diary about how much she loves Mrs. and Pines for Rochester, She does not confide in her ward's nanny, Sophie, that she is in love with the master of the house. She does not write Rochester a letter of longing. Instead, she forces herself to draw Miss Ingram as beautifully as she can possibly imagine her, and then draw the plainest, ugliest version of herself that she can. She crushes her own heart. When Rochester returns weeks later, he brings a huge party with him, including the woman, Miss Ingram, who it is rumored he wants to marry. One night when the entire party, including Jane, is gathered in the parlor waiting for Mr. Rochester to return from an errand, a fortune-telling gypsy arrives at the door of the house. All of the rich people at the party have their fortunes told, but the gypsy won't leave because she says there is one more member of the party who she consents needs to be seen, Jane. Jane gets led into seeing the gypsy, and the preceding prayer is what the gypsy says that she can see in Jane's face. The gypsy is, of course, Rochester in drag. It is an incredible ability that Rochester has of reading Jane's face. He is right. Jane can live alone and will if she needs to. She will jump out of a car once she realizes that here and paying attention are not enough. But Rochester is able to see this in her before she has to act on it. Disguised as a woman, Rochester the most self-indulgent man to ever be written about, is able to see that Jane would be willing to walk away from him if she had to. Now, in fairness to Peter, this trip where I broke up with him for talking about a future that I was not in was not a normal trip. We were visiting his dying mother. I thought I was seeing a truth in his moment of crisis, not a blip and I thought it would be cruel of me to be disingenuously by his side for such an important part of his life. So I got out of the car and cracked my heart in half, picturing his beautiful life without me, back in Europe, unmarried, unmarred, again and again in my head, to convince myself that I was doing the right thing. Not that I was engaging in an act of self-loathing, And not that I had broken up with a man I loved and cared for while his mother was dying. Being heartbroken is a gift. It is an acute pain that passes. And women should break their own hearts at least once to prove to themselves that they will not settle for here and paying attention to me. Peter and I got back together four months later when I realized that I did not miss a man, but this man. He was truly the first man I was willing to walk away from and the first I wanted to return to. And the willingness to walk away was so important to me. It means that I know that if he ever breaks my heart, I will survive. If he brings his mistress to our grandchild's bar mitzvah, I won't have to simply hold on to my in-law's arm I will be able to say, we're done here. My grandmother, in the last years of her life, could not have lived alone. That is the brutal truth that women have known. Many women, when the moment was right, poisoned their husband's beer or otherwise found a way to get away. But the years of malnutrition caught up with my grandmother when she was in her early 70s and her back crumbled. She had cement put in and rods, all for naught. She once held my hand as she collapsed onto the dining room table, putting her head down like a scolded child in the second grade, and smiled at me. I asked if she was okay, and she whispered, no. Nations collapse and attack us. Storms flood us, and bodies break. We need each other. That's why I really think it might be best to break our own hearts, to prove that we can survive anything and then still love the cause of our heartbreak, whether that be a friend, a sibling, a daughter, or a lover. We need community, and we need to remember how strong we are on our own. We have to be willing to walk away from someone for our own sake. And we have to be willing to go back for the same reason.